Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for uh, for the church. We thank you for your bride. We thank you that uh, you have made her one holy Catholic and apostolic. And we ask that you would uh, bless this time as we look into these things. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, well, we are on page 8 in our catechism. Page 8, the church and the ministry. And we are going right along. So I think before the summer's out, we'll be, we'll be finished with, uh, with this series, Lord willing. So, uh, page 8. Um, when were you made a member of the church? I was made a member of the church when I was baptized. What is the church? The church is the body of which Jesus Christ is the head, and all baptized people are the members. How is the church described in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds? The church is described in the creeds as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What do we mean by these words? We mean that the church is one because it is one body under one head, holy because the Holy Spirit dwells within it and sanctifies its members, Catholic because it is universal, holding sincerely the faith of all times, in all countries, and for all people, and is sent to preach the gospel to the whole world. Apostolic because it continues firmly in the apostles' teachings and fellowship. What is your binding duty as members of the church? My binding duty is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. What special means does the church provide to help you do all these things? The church provides the laying on of hands or confirmation. Here, after renewing the promises and vows of my baptism and declaring my loyalty and devotion to Christ as my master, I receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give me inner strength. After you've been confirmed, what great privilege does our Lord provide for you? Our Lord provides the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, for the continual strengthening and refreshing of my soul. What orders of ministers are there in the church? Bishops, priests, and deacons. Which orders have been in the church from the earliest times? What is the office of a bishop? The office of a bishop is to be chief pastor in the church, to confer holy orders, and to administer confirmation. What is the office of a priest? The office of a priest is to minister to the people committed to his care, to preach the word of God, to baptize, to celebrate Holy Communion, and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. What is the office of a deacon? The office of a deacon is to assist the priest in divine service and his other ministrations under the direction of the bishop. What are the main seasons of the church year? The main seasons of the church year are Advent, when we anticipate the coming of the Lord, Christmas tide, when we celebrate the nativity of Jesus, Epiphany tide, when we celebrate the Lord's revelation to the nations, Lent, a season of repentance in anticipation of the resurrection, Holy Week, when we remember our Lord's passion and death, Easter tide, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, Ascension tide, when we celebrate our Lord's ascension into heaven and seating at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost or Whit Sunday when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, Trinity Tide when we celebrate the Holy Trinity and grow in our walk with God. What are the typical colors associated with these seasons? The traditional colors associated with the church year are 
violet for Advent, Lent, Holy Week, and funerals, a somber color of anticipation and repentance, white for Christmastide, Epiphany, Eastertide, Ascensiontide, Trinity Sunday, and funerals, a color of celebration, green for Epiphany Tide and Trinity Tide, a color of growth and life for ordinary time, red for Pentecost, Confirmations, Ordinations, and Martyrs' Feasts, a color representing the fire of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Bible? The Holy Bible or Holy Scripture is God's Word and contains all things necessary for salvation. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself, tells the story of God and His people, and contains the teachings of Christ and His Apostles. Everything we must believe is read in or proved by Scripture. How many books are in the Bible? The Bible includes the 39 books of the Hebrew Old Testament and the 27 books of the Greek New Testament. These are the 66 canonical books of whose authority was never in any doubt in the church. Okay, so let's turn back to page 9 and pick up where we left off last week. We began this section. Um, We talked about what is the church. We talked about when we made a member. and We mentioned the one holy Catholic and apostolic nature of the church as described in the creeds. And so then let's pick up by what do we mean by these words. So we mean that the church is one because it is one body under one head. Okay, so what does that do with the problem of all the denominations? <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's always the big question that comes up with this. Um, I think the first thing we should acknowledge is, um, A, that the uh, abundance of denominations is not a good thing. Um, yeah, the, the, the Reformation is something of a tragic necessity in the Western Church. Um, we celebrate it because it brought about very good things, but um, had the church been doing what the church was supposed to do in the Middle Ages, it never would have happened. Um, the same, and we, we see the same thing um, when that's, that schism between East and West. Uh, so you'll find a lot of times people want to lay on Protestants to blame for dividing the church. But there's a few things we should remember from that. First of all, the church was already divided when we got it because the church, we, we've, had, we've had schisms of one sort or another from the earliest times. Um, we talked about this in a previous class before a lot of y'all were, were, were with us, but um, as early as uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, so the fifth century, we had a major schism of the church when the Oriental Orthodox split off from the rest of the church because they um, would not, uh, they thought the idea of Christ having two natures, a human and a divine nature, is problematic. Um, And they, they didn't like that, and so they split off. And so we think of the Coptic folks from Egypt are kind of the biggest of those examples. We have some, some cops here in San Antonio. They've got a really neat retreat center up north of town in Timberwood Park um, that we may uh, do our best retreat there one day. Uh, very, very persecuted people, but good, good people. And, but, you know, and, and fortunately, that particular schism has been not institutionally healed, but everybody involved real, recognizes that there was a certain amount of talking past each other in those days. Um, you know, what, what they thought the rest of the church meant by two natures is not what the rest of the church meant by two natures. And what we thought by their um, rejection of two natures is not what they meant by that either. So that, that's kind of the way that goes a lot of times. Uh, fast forward to 1054, we had the East-West Schism, and that was something building 
over a long period of time, and part of that had to do with um, the uh, the uh, Pope in Rome um, taking on more and more and more authority, and kind of declaring himself as not so much, you know, the first among equals, but the first period. Um, so that was part of the problem. Um, the Eastern Church never accepted those those claims by the Pope. Part of it was some language differences that were causing some theology differences. And you get, things got to the point where the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople and the uh, Pope ex mutually excommunicated each other, and the, the church has never been healed from that either. Um, and there's some things that they, the East says that you gotta do if we're gonna get things back together, get the band back together. And uh, the Western church is mm, kind of okay with most of those things, kind of, not really. <laughs> um, uh, but of course, as far as the Rome is concerned, if you don't acknowledge the uh, Pope as the vicar of Christ and the head of the whole church, um, you can't be, have reunions. So, you know, that's a problem there. Um, and then, of course, we do have the Reformation. And the main issue with the Reformation was um, issues of, of justification. Um, you know, the medieval church had swerved from the biblical picture of justification and needed to be brought back. Unfortunately, um, even the reformers did not all we're not able to keep um, the Protestant band together for much more than a generation. And so um, there, is, there is a tragic division. That's a bad thing. Um, nobody thinks it's a good thing. Uh, but that does not change the ontological, that essential unity of the church, that ultimately all the church is part of one family, even if the earthly institutions are not one. And a good analogy of this is the way things happened with Israel in the Old Testament. If you remember, Israel becomes two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, but that didn't change the fact that they were still all God's people Israel, even though they were two kingdoms. That's kind of the way it is with the church, the way we'd see this. And so um, it is one body under one head. Ultimately, Christ is the head of the church. It doesn't matter whether you're Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, whatever. Um, one body, one head, which is the church, which is Christ, rather. Holy, because the Holy Spirit dwells within it and sanctifies its members. Okay, so yes, the Holy Spirit enables the church to do what the church is supposed to do. We would have no spread of the gospel without the Holy Spirit working on, on, um, on, on, on uh, unconverted people, on, on non-Christians to bring them into the family. Um, we would have no, no sacraments without the Holy Spirit. So the two things that really make the church the church, which is the, um, the word and the sacrament, neither one of those things would be effective effective without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells within the church and therefore we can be said to be holy. Um, but also it sanctifies its members. The, we're not always holy people, but we're getting better. <laughs> and that's what, that's what one of the things the Holy Spirit does is sanctify its members, getting us better. Um, and we acknowledge, you know, as the church that it is, that the church has never been perfect, um, either institutionally or in terms of its, its members. But we do trust that the Lord is working on us anyway. And holy, of course, um, means set, set apart. It means, um, that's what sanctification means. That's what holy means. Um, it means set apart. And um, so that, that, in its most literal sense, we can say to be true, even if we don't always act the way that holy people ought to act. Um, Catholic, because it's universal, that's what Catholic means. Um, the, the two Greek roots 
are kind of according to the whole, but it, the, in, the inference there is universal. And so that means that, it hold, that it, 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 because it sincerely holds the faith for all time and all countries and for all people, and is sent to preach the gospel to the whole world. Again, we're looking beyond institutional unity here. Um, that's something that, again, hasn't been the case for now, well over, oh, 1,500 years, um, unfortunately. But, um, but we, do, we do, because it's one, then, it, then therefore it's also Catholic. The church as, a, as an ontological unity, as an essential unity, as the body of Christ is universal. Um, there's this great little little phrase that uh, comes to us from St. Vincent of Laron, uh, 5th century, um, uh, one of the church fathers of that time. And he said that the, um, the Catholic faith is um, that which is held by all, um, everywhere, by all, and, oh, I always forget the third one. Yeah, always, everywhere, and by all. That's what it is. Always, everywhere, and by, and by all. Thank you. <laughs> the Latin is a lot cooler than the English. Um, and we, ha- we have this um, kind of the greater, that's the summary of what St. Vincent said. And, and that's really how we, how, we, how we look at Catholicity. Is this something that was, you know, it is universal. Now, when we say that, we recognize that there are some specific issues that get worked out in time because they weren't controversial until a certain time. You know, when you look at second and third century writings on the Trinity, it's sloppy. Well, that's because the issue hadn't come to a head with the Arian controversy until the fourth century. But after the fourth century, Trinitarian language gets very precise. Um, And we would say the same thing is true with justification, um, that what has happened with the issue of justification is that it wasn't really controversial until the time of the Reformation. And so the church fathers sometimes can be, we would consider some of their, the way they use the word, the concept to be a little sloppy at times. Um, but what we do see is that that rejection of justification by faith alone, which is something we find explicit in scripture, is a departure from the biblical faith, because ultimately the Bible sets that standard, right? Um, so that's, uh, that's Catholic, all times, all countries, for all people, and the church is sent to preach the gospel to the whole world. Uh, once upon a time, you did have a case where a lot of the world was, was kind of divided up on, based on locality. If you were in England, you, you were an Anglican. Um, if, you, you, if you were in um, France, you were generally Roman Catholic. Germany, depending on what part of Germany, would have been Lutheran or Catholic. Anywhere in the East was Eastern Orthodox, that sort of thing. That's no longer the case. Um, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but in some ways, it's also very messy. Um, any, I mean, you look at the alphabet soup that is Anglicanism in our, in our country. Um, that's not the way it should be, but that's the way it is. And, and you know what? We're, we're, not, we're not the only ones in that position. Um, any Protestant denomination, but we're not, we're not, only, not only Protestants. The Eastern Orthodox have an alphabet soup here, too, and they fight just as bad as any Protestant alphabet soup. So um, the only ones that don't really is the Roman Catholics, but that's because their authority structure <laughs> allows them to be institutionally a bit more, um, on paper, looking a lot, a lot more unified, even if the, politi- you know, the reality in terms of the way people actually believe and practice is not the case. Um, you have some very high-profile Roman Catholics in Washington, D.C. that, frankly, 
um, thumb their nose at the official teachings of the church, for example. And so, yeah, that's, that's the way that goes. But nevertheless, we do, we do consider the church on an essential level to be Catholic. And then um, apostolic because it continues firmly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. So we talk about sometimes in Anglican circles apostolic succession. Um, we really mean two things by that. So um, most of the time if you hear Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox talking about apostolic succession, they are going to be talking about that pedigree of the bishops, that you can trace the bishops' ordination lineage back to the apostles. And um, the idea being that therefore you know you have a, um, a continuity of faith. Um, we know by experience that that's not necessarily the case, though, that the faith, just because you were ordained by somebody who had the right faith doesn't mean you hold the right faith. And the church hasn't always been good at policing itself, which is why we do have all the schisms. So we, we would say, we would consider as, as um, sons of the Reformation, we would consider that the most important aspect of apostolic succession is the continuity of doctrine, the continuity of the faith. But we also, as having that Episcopal polity, do place importance on our bishops having that pedigree um, because we see that is the pattern that's been, that was established from, from the oldest times. And we're gonna talk about that probably in a week or two. Um, but, so primarily the issue is that the, that, the, that the church continues firmly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, um, but we do, we do consider an important part of that for us anyway to be also the, um, the actual pedigree and Episcopal orders, though we would not vote off the island those that do not have such things um yeah and, and we we would say if you if there's a document or called the La chicago lambeth quadrilateral it comes out in the late 19th century uh, pushed um, originally it it came out of the episcopal church um, in chicago but it gets ratified by the higher Anglican communion at the next lambeth um, conference and it basically gives us four things that would be necessary for institutional unity. So those four things being, um, and again, you'll, you will find this on our website, but we would say um, the Old New Testament as being the Word of God and, and um, the, uh, this, what, telling us everything we need for, for salvation. Um, the three creeds as expressing the, the faith of the church. Um, the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion as generally necessary for salvation. And then the historic episcopacy locally adapted um, as being the, basically the institutional um, focus of the church. So locally adapted gives a lot of wide range for what that might look like, but we would say that in terms of institutional unity, that's important. Um, okay, we got, we got 10 minutes we can move on or we could field some questions on these. Cecil? So in the Roman Catholic teaching, um, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is the Vicar of Christ. So that means he is Christ's earthly representative here. Um, yeah, I see the scowl. I agree. <laughs> um, so their, their believing is that the Pope 
has unique authority from Jesus, that Jesus gave authority to Peter, who gave it to um, Linus, who gave it to Clement, and on down to, to Francis today, that that authority goes directly from Jesus to down the line to the current Pope, and that um, part of what that means is that, A, he's the earthly head of the church, so the man who's in charge of the whole church. Um, the bishop over under whom everybody else is, you know, he's everybody's bishop, basically. And secondly, that when he's speaking as the pope, you know, so, he, so in his office as the pope on an issue of faith and morals, that that's something that is infallible, that, that, that he cannot err because the Holy Spirit won't let him err. Um, as Protestants, we necessarily have major issues with that doctrine. <laughs> um, you know, that, and that's really why, when if you read Martin Luther, John Calvin, some of the, even even Thomas Cranmer, some of our folks um, at the, in the 16th century, they will call the Pope um, an antichrist. And it's not so much that they think that you know the guy sitting in Rome at his day or even down to our day or any time before that was going to give people the 666, you know, or whatever like that. Not as much as that office in, in, in taking that level of authority is, is against Jesus's authority because no man can have that level of authority. Um, so while um, historic, you know, for, for a while now, at least for a hundred years or so, we've had generally good relations with the Pope on our, on our official levels, um, we, will, we will still would maintain that um, the claims of the office are antithetical to, um, uh, really, to, 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 to Scripture, to, to um, that, faith that, for all, that faith for all time. Uh, you know, you, you can't read the writings from the days of the apostles really up until the east-west schism in the ninth in the 11th century and you can't find that all of those people um uphold that office in that way i mean roman catholics claim that's the case but it's a total twisting of the context and it's largely because the people that claim that don't know the context they haven't read it they've just heard that that's what they've been told um, so, but yeah, the, the, especially in the, in, in, uh, in, in the Eastern part of the church, the Greek speaking part in those early days, they never gave the Pope that kind of authority. And the Pope didn't even give himself that authority in the early days. It's something that comes later. Any, any other, uh, any other things on, um, that explanation of one holy Catholic and apostolic? Okay, well, let's look at the next question. This is really one of my favorite questions. Um, I don't like the way it's, I don't like as much the way that it is um, phrased in here because I think the, the wording is a little awkward in modern English because it doesn't really feel like modern English, nor does it feel proper in older English, but we'll go with it anyway. And I'll read it to you in the, the way our, our catechism in the prayer book has it. It says, what is your binding duty as a member of the church? My binding duty is to follow Christ to worship God every Sunday in his church and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. The way that um, we, we, we put this in our catechism, the older English says, what is your bounden duty as a member of the church? 
My bounden duty is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. That idea of bounden duty kind of in its old language doesn't really translate directly into binding duty today. It's more like um, it, it, the, what it really conveys more is what, what, what is your solemn duty? What is, the, what is your responsibility as a member of the church? What is, you know, um, if, if, if you've ever, um, my dad, when he was in the military, used to teach uh, rights and responsibilities um, for the Navy. And so this basically said, okay, this is what the Navy owes you as a sailor, but this is what you owe the Navy as a sailor. And um, what we're saying is that as a member of the church, this is what you owe to, to the community of faith, what you owe to the church. So it's to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of his kingdom. That gives us a pretty wide um, range of application, I would think. I mean, um, because, you know, working for the, for the spread of his kingdom could be something as simple as um, someone sweeping the floors at, at the church so that the priest can focus on preaching the gospel, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, it could be something as big as, you know, um, you know, organizing and running a mission trip or something as every day as, um, you know, talking to your neighbor about Jesus um, choosing to do the right thing scripturally, you know, that sort of deal. It, it has it has a very it has a very wide range um, uh, as to what that means. But but I, but it does mean that we should be doing things for the kingdom of God. We should be praying and we should be giving. Giving is something that's important. Everybody everybody in the church should give for for the kingdom. Um, yeah, to, to uh, and of course to follow Christ, um, that that's going to, gosh, that, that, that applies to so many things from, um, you know, loving your neighbor and loving the Lord, um, to, the, you know, the summary of the law, to all the ways that that works out, to um, uh, focusing on Christ. Um, that just works every way and worship God every Sunday in his church. That doesn't necessarily mean Holy Communion, but Holy Communion should be part of that, we would, we would generally say. Not, it doesn't have to be, but it should be. Um, and it's not a good thing to miss church. Now, it does happen, for there, and sometimes there are good reasons for that, but there's also a lot of really bad reasons why people miss church. <laughs> I mean, that's, just, that's just the truth. Sometimes there are really bad reasons why people miss church. And, um, you know, it's good to be reminded of this from time to time, that this is our, our, uh, our bounden duty. This is our solemn duty. This is our responsibility before the Lord to the church. Um, these are not issues, of course, of salvation. These are not, you know, you, you do this and you're, you're, you're in danger of hellfire because you don't do this. That's not what we're saying at all. But we're saying that as a member of the church, as, as, as a member of the community, as someone who is part of the body of Christ, we each owe each other something. We don't get to be just me and Jesus doing whatever I want. Uh, questions or comments on the bounden duty? Okay. Well, then um, let's, uh, let's, let's go forward a little bit um, more. 
Um, we are probably not going to finish this question today, but we'll, we'll, we'll begin it. Um, what special means does the church provide to help you do all these things? The church provides the laying of hands or confirmation here after renewing the promises and vows of my baptism and declaring my loyalty and devotion to Christ as my master. I receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give me inner strength. All right, so um, there's a few things that we can break down to that. First of all, I, I do want to read a passage from Acts, which is where we would see the um, general, um, uh, the, the, the general antecedent for for um, confirmation. So this is Acts chapter, okay, chapter, chapter 8, okay, so um, just to give a bit of a background, this in, in beginning of verse 4, um, Philip goes, Philip, who is not one of the apostles, he is, this is Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist, um, not Philip the apostle, different Philip. He goes down to Samaria, so the apostles are all still in Jerusalem. Philip goes to Samaria to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And so they heard him, they saw signs, that he was casting out demons, and many people came to believe in Jesus. And um, so let's skip down to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who are both apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Um, and then we can, then we get into the story about Simon, the rest of the story about Simon the magician. But this idea that um, we want to have those who are in that apostolic office, that is the bishop to come and lay hands to pray for that strengthening within the of the, of the Holy Spirit, those gifts of the Spirit, um, is something that we would want to see. So when they talk about that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them, that does not mean the Holy Spirit wasn't active because he was the one that brought them into their conversion to begin with, right? But So he, he already regenerated them, but it was so that they would have the gifts of the Holy Spirit empowered um, to them. They would be strengthened, empowered for ministry at, you know, and, and for um, really working as mature believers in the church. And, and so, and the reason why we, we, we do have the bishops do that is because of this passage where the apostles were sent to Samaria to do that. Now, um, so there's a few things that happen at confirmation. First, we renew the promises and vows of our baptism. Now, that many of us will have been baptized as children, or we will, those promises will be made on our behalf by our sponsors, by our godparents and parents. Um, but others will have been adult converts who, who made that on their own. Either way, before the bishop and before the whole church, we renew those vows. Um, uh, basically saying, yes, this is indeed what I believe. This is indeed what I promise to do. Um, almost the same way that a, um, uh, a Jewish person would go through their bar mitzvah. Okay, you are, you are becoming a mature member of the community. 
um, you know, reaching your state of majority in the eyes of the, uh, the religious community. Um, so, you know, declare the loyalty and devotion to Christ, and then we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give, give inner strength. That's what confirmation means. It means strengthening. And so the, the bishop, as he, as he does lay his hands, he also prays for that strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Um, is this something that is absolutely necessary uh, for every, every believer? No, obviously not. It's not um, specifically commanded by Christ. But it's, it is something that the church has done for, forever and ever and ever. And again, the big, the big thing is renewing those promises and vows and receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, again, does indwell each and every believer at baptism. And sometimes we do see non-confirmed people exercising the gifts of the Spirit because the Spirit can do what he wants. Um, but this is, this is really a, 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 a gift that the church gives um, that, that, that someone sitting in the seat of the apostles in that, in that, that status as overseer would um, pray for those gifts to be strengthened and, and to have that strength to do your bounden duty. Um, we are over time, so there's not much time for questions on that, but we'll, we'll review this question next week. And um, I'm sure there's going to be questions on confirmation. There should be. <laughs> confirmation is one of those things that should get questions. So I will see you all in Evensong today. Mm -hmm.